Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am so excited to have Dr. Jeff McNary on the show. Jeff is the former director of Passages in Malibu and now is the chief medical director of Rhythmia Life Advancement Center, a beautiful retreat resort in Costa Rica that uses the modalities of holotropic breathing and plant medicine to help heal the heart. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to speak with you. Yeah, yeah. I was just for the listeners, I was just at Rhythmia, I got home. Gosh, I think about two weeks ago, and it was transforming. And I'll, I'll tell you more about that in um, in another interview, probably. But let's just jump jump right in, Doctor Jeff. Perfect. Should I call you Jeff okay. or Doctor Jeff? Either one's fine. Either <laughs> okay, one's fine. okay. <laughs> so, um, could you share with us your academic medical background and how you began on this on this spiritual path? Sure. So, I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology and I studied mostly medical anthropology, Latin American cultures, took a lot of ethnobotany courses. And of course I didn't know what I was going to be leading towards in my career, but I was just really interested in that. And then I uh, got into a PhD program at Berkeley and a couple other schools for medical anthropology. And I decided I wanted to do research for a year first in MedAnthro to see if that's what I want to do for my career. So I went to UCLA and got um, involved in a research project on prenatal diagnostic screening procedures for Latin American women. And it was really amazing. I learned a ton, started working at the OBGYN departments at UCLA and eventually managing some of their clinics. Um, But in the meantime, I learned that I didn't want to be an academic person in a, like a professor at a university. So I, I went and got a master's in public health at UCLA. I studied health law and program development and health policy and that kind of stuff. And uh, then I decided I want to go to medical school. So I applied to medical school, um, took all the pre-meds at UCLA while I was managing the OBGYN clinic and uh, realized that when I eventually I got in, but I realized I didn't want to work within the Western medical model because I had been Mm -hmm. seeing all the different struggles that uh, patients were having, as well as the medical facility doctors were having. So I left Los Angeles, moved to Hawaii, and started working for the Department of Health. And in the Department of Health in Hawaii, I was working with Native Hawaiian families and mostly uh, adolescents and just ones that have behavior issues and all kinds of different struggles. And I ended up uh, rewriting the policies and the protocols for native Hawaiian kids to uh, who struggle with all different issues. that was more culturally sensitive and cultural based. Um, We all know that in Hawaii and as well as other parts of the world, um, a lot of things are imposed upon them that are not maybe culturally relevant. So I was really into doing client centered approaches and 
empowering the the native Hawaiian families to you know boost self-esteem and have better health outcomes. And that's when I decided I want to get a doctorate in psychology. So I moved back to LA. And while I was in my graduate program, was I was managing that drug and alcohol rehab called Passages in, in Malibu. And that's where I met uh, Jerry, who was one of the patients there. And he was he was a, a multimillionaire dude who was just off the rails a bit with a lot of problems. And uh, him and I started working together for about five years after he was done with the rehab. And that's what basically sort of led to all this stuff that we're doing down here in Costa Rica. Wow. What a, what a bio, what a journey you've been on. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's been abs- wild. <laughs> absolutely beautiful. And you have, you have how many children? I have four kids. I have a 20 year old daughter. I have a 16 year old son and I have a two year old daughter and an eight month, actually she's nine months today, nine month old uh, son. Yeah. Yeah, wow. so I got the full range. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Well, I know um, when I was at Arrhythmia, you talked a lot about the importance of remembering who we were when we came into this world and the importance it has in healing our hearts as as adults. Um, can you please expand on that a little bit? Sure. So we believe that, you know, also in psychology, they believe this, but we at Rhythmia believe that most people between the ages of four and seven go through some sort of life event that creates a a split from the self. And so it's kind of like an unplugging from the authentic self. And what that means is that if I'm uh, going through trauma or let's say abuse or neglect, or I just am understanding my reality in a certain way that I, I could have great parents and stuff. But if, if I feel that I need to take care of myself emotionally for whatever reason, uh, I learned that it's no longer safe to be who I am. And I have to start creating this persona that I show to the world in order to survive or to get accolades or to avoid danger or whatever the reason might be. And so there's a split that occurs and it's called a dissociation. Some people have it really severe, depending on uh, maybe a severe abuse they went through. Some people have it milder because maybe they had good caregivers, but they just maybe were working and busy and they were a loving family, but the kid had to sort of take care of themselves, at least in their own opinion, right, as a child. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we're all born into this earth, unless there was something that went on uh, in utero, such as scarcity or domestic violence or maybe drug and alcohol abuse, Usually what happens is when we're born, we're, we're totally complete and whole and connected to ourselves and we're pure and we're just who we are. And then this split happens and then all of a sudden we're on this, this path where our authentic self is not really what is being represented to the world or even to ourselves. We start to adopt this sort of other persona, you know, to show things to, and to survive basically. Right. Wow. And the importance of then accept acknowledging that and then remembering who we are and that's important because yeah because if we don't if we don't really plug back into ourselves ever and we live our entire lives you know as adults disconnected from our true self what happens is we develop all these behavioral issues that are problematic. We, be, we develop mental health issues. We develop illnesses. We believe that all cause of unease is related to being unplugged from the, from the self. Right. So whether that's anxiety, depression, addiction, uh, 
mental health, all kinds of mental health issues, um, also illnesses. So like, you know, all kinds of different illnesses, autoimmune disorders, all kinds of stuff is related to uh, a big part of it is not being united with your actual true self. Right, right. And I, I know that the three things that we were asked to really look at or dive into was number one was who have I become yes. since that coming into this world? And number two was um, merging back with your soul, with that self. And right. number three was healing, was, was healing your heart, which is really beautiful. So tell us a little bit. So you were very much in the clinical aspects of, of psychology and helping people. And now you're working with shamans and indigenous <laughs> cultures. And it was my favorite part when I was there. It was just yeah. magical. And the plant medicine. So let's just dive into that and tell us a little bit about that and what what you thought initially when Jerry brought that to your attention and how, how that's evolved. Well, I was always pretty frustrated with the Western medical model with the patient population that I was dealing with. So I had probably the three most difficult groups of people you could say clinically. And those three groups were people with trauma, people that have addiction and people that have acute psychiatric issues. I also uh, worked in a locked psychiatric hospital during my wow. career while I was in my private practice. So those people and a lot of us that don't have maybe as severe of things, uh, let's say for a good example would be depression. Uh, a lot of people are diagnosed with depression, but there isn't a really good way to get over it. And most people are just given a ton of meds and they see a therapist for many years and they go in and out of facilities depending on how severe their depression is, and nothing really changes. Uh, the statistics are very low for people to kind of get over it. And so it, to start off the whole thing, basically I was really frustrated with just kind of how the, the Western system worked. And I didn't really have any tools, I wasn't taught any tools to help people really get over things. It's, it was always an external source of change that was sort of uh, asked of the clients to sort of go through, change your friends or change your environment or get a job or all these external things, listen to these experts, you know, your therapist, your doctor, whatever. But really the, the only way to actually change is internally. And the person mm -hmm. has to do their own work for themselves individually. So um, with Jerry, I was working with him for so many years and getting nowhere. And, you know, we were trying everything. We was going to all these different workshops. He was, you know, he was on meds at some point. He was, uh, you know, trying to do all the holistic stuff, you know, like meditation, yoga. He, he didn't really get into that, but <laughs> I offered it to him. And a right. ton of therapy, you know, and all kinds of counseling. And so um, a friend of mine actually recommended that Jerry go down to Costa Rica and try this, this plant medicine, which right. was something Can I that... Just interject sure. one second uh -huh. so can you just tell them you briefly said who jerry is but just about him he's the director of rhythmia just yeah. a little bit more background on sure. him jerry's the ceo of rhythmia and he was like i mentioned he was one of my patients for about five years after he left passages and uh he was a multi-millionaire guy who had retired at a young age and he was just basically self-destructive and doing a lot of drugs and just doing a lot of bad behavior. And he was miserable and he was suicidal. And so 
him and I hit it off and connected pretty well. So I was working with him for that long to try to get things better for him. And he was, he was working pretty hard as well, but nothing was really happening. And he got suicidal again. And that's when one of my friends recommended, uh, it was a friend that I met through passages who was this woman who was a shaman actually. I didn't know much about shamans at that point, you know, I mean, yes. I'd watch, you know, I'd watch some documentaries here and there, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't know much about what all that was. So, um, she recommended that he go to Costa Rica and try, you know, this remedy because she had seen his exact same sort of case get amazingly better and turn a corner. And she thought that this would be something that he would benefit from. So, she recommended he do it and he did. He just was all right. I got no other choice. I guess I'll go for it. So that's how that started. He came down to Costa Rica and went to this place up in the mountains and did his first plant medicine experience. Yeah. And so tell us about what is plant medicine and how does it's a whole nother episode of how does it work? But if you could yeah. just, <laughs> you just kind of, well, well, the way I, the way I like to explain it is, Indigenous cultures all over the world have, they're very connected to the earth and they're very connected to the regional plants and, and different species of animals and all kinds of things where they live. And in all these indigenous societies, whether it's Latin America, you know, South America or, or um, Africa or wherever, you know, North, anywhere, um, what they do is they have these shamans who are these curanderos is another word in Latin America. They're these healers and they're sort of the medical I guess you could say professionals of their tribe or their, their village. And there's just one particular plant medicine from Latin America called ayahuasca. And what it does is it helps people plug back into themselves and it helps give them clarity on who they are. It helps them plug in and heal themselves from all different kinds of things, whether it's trauma or, or any sort of situation going on medically or health wise. And it's, uh, it's something that's mixed with two different plants. It's a vine, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, and it's, which means that it turns off stomach enzymes is what that does temporarily. And there's another plant, which is a dimethyltryptamine source. And regionally in Latin America, there's all these different plants that have a high level of DMT. And basically, they mix those two plants together and create this brew, sort of this tea, and people drink it. And then the stomach enzymes turn off and then the DMT gets absorbed into the body. And DMT is something that we all have naturally in us. Most of the DMT in our bodies is located in the cerebral spinal fluid. It's located behind the eyes. Um, there's theories that it's, it's also in the pineal gland. They haven't been able to prove that, but there's yeah. sort of a theory. Parts of the lungs have it. And uh, the best way I can explain what DMT is, is for naturally in our bodies, it's to give us a sense of uh, connection, not only with ourselves, but also with our environment and other people, sort of our, our intuition. It's something that when people are, are passing away, there's a high level of DMT that gets released into the body. It helps the, the transition into the, the next life. And so it's something that's like a part of who we are. It's in all living things, plants and animals have it, just different degrees of it. And so when you take a little bit extra DMT into your body, what happens is those senses are heightened and you have this more of a connection with yourself and the environment. You get to have some clarity. There's a lot of neurochemistry going on, a lot of brain stuff happening that's really healthy and interesting. Wow. wow. And I know not only a lot of clarity, but actually revisiting 
you know, other, when you were young and going into other dimensions and yeah. can you talk about that, that a little bit? I mean, yeah. maybe your personal experience. Would- sure. So what's happening uh, when you drink ayahuasca is the part of the brain that stores our subconscious memories is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is like, let's say the example I give is that if I was uh, scared, let's say by a dog that was maybe going to bite me and I was five years old, what would happen in that event for survival is that I would push my emotions into my amygdala of fear and anxiety and confusion. I would push them there because my emotions in that moment would get in the way of me surviving this dog attack. So what happens in the fight or flight response is that my behaviors kick in and I can run or I can kick the dog, which I love dogs. So I wouldn't kick a dog. <laughs> I love dogs too. Yeah, I love dogs. But it's something your behavior kicks in to survive that moment. And then those emotions get pushed off into the amygdala. Then a neurochemical pathway gets established in the amygdala that says dogs are scary and stay away from dogs. So that was a one-time event, let's say when I was five. Then now I'm an adult and I still have this thing with dogs. Like I don't like dogs. Everybody else seems to, so I don't know why I don't. They're friendly. They want to pet, you know, I want to, you know, they they come up to me and they want to lick me, but I don't, I don't want anything to do with dogs. And so I do ayahuasca. I drink ayahuasca. Then what happens is the amygdala opens up and it connects with the prefrontal cortex part of the brain. And our prefrontal cortex is where we have our rational sort of cognitive analysis component. And it's our logical thinking and sort of our our awareness. And what happens is the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex connect. And then I get to see what this whole dog thing is about. And I realize, oh yeah, at age five, I remember now I was attacked by a dog and it was scary, but now I'm not a five-year-old kid. And so the, the emotions of fear that were stored in the amygdala will surface and then I'll feel them, I'll feel scared for a moment, and then they leave me. And then what happens is, is a concept in, in neurobiology called synaptic plasticity, which means that the brain can shift and change and grow and build new neuron pathways. So in that moment, what I do is I, my brain develops a new neuron pathway that dogs are not scary, I shouldn't be afraid of dogs, dogs are nice, dogs are happy, dogs are loving, And I have this whole new sort of awareness about dogs and the fear that was sort of creeping into my my existence because I hadn't dealt with this yet, that's gone. And so now I have clarity and I can have a dog as a pet. And that's kind of like an analogy I give is like what's going on with people that have trauma or any sort of issue that's related to a historical event. Wow. So what are some of the... um some of the results you've seen, I guess we can talk about Jerry. Yeah. Well, Jerry, uh, was a rough guy before plant medicine. He was uh, a drug addict. He was a womanizer. He was a violent, angry dude. And he was super successful, which led also to his demise in a sense, because he had no limits and no boundaries and he could do whatever he wanted to. And it just was a horrible sort of situation for him. Mm. When he did plant medicine, he realized what had happened to him as a kid and what his trauma was about. He had no idea. He didn't remember it as an adult. He had no clue. But he had some abuse from his grandfather that he, that he remembered and connected to and was able to process and get past. And so that event that happened or a series of events when he was a little kid led him 
to have all these behaviors as an adult that were not good. He didn't trust men. He treated women very poorly. He had a self-loathing, self-destructive sort of thing. It was all linked back to this abuse that he received from his grandfather when he was a little kid. So what happened for him after he did plant medicine is he completely changed. And he was no longer fighting all the time. He was no longer doing drugs. He no longer uh, wanted to hit anybody. <laughs> wow, wow. And he, he was able to have healthy relationships. And he completely did a 180, which was really actually for me hard to believe because I had been working with him for five years. Yeah. I'd seen his behavior. I had tried every single medical and therapeutic protocol possible and none of it worked. But then all of a sudden he just like flipped a switch and he was different. And so I had to see it for myself. So I came down to Costa Rica and did it myself a couple of weeks after he did it. Wow. And did the same sort of thing happen with, I mean, you were probably a nicer guy, but. Yeah, I was a little nicer. <laughs> How, what was your experience? Well, I grew up in a very rough part of Los Angeles in the seventies. That was uh, now is no longer rough, but uh, you know, LA is changing a lot, but um, I grew up in a really rough part of town and I had to be tough as a little kid. I had to learn how to survive on the streets. My parents were awesome. So I didn't have any sort of family problems, but my environment was not good. It was very negative and dangerous. And I had to learn how to be tough and to kind of keep people away from me in order to be safe. And I had carried this sort of energy into my adult years, even as a therapist. And I, I, it was funny because um, when I was in my doctoral program, I did an internship. You have to do like three or four of these internships that are year long to get your, your pre-doc clinical hours. And I was in one of them. And at the end of the internship, um, the, the supervisor evaluates you and tells you how you did. And you know, I did well. And I was like, okay, cool. This will be easy. A two hour conversation, no big deal. And at the very end of the evaluation, my supervisor said, I just want you to know, Jeff, that um, this whole year I've been scared and intimidated by you. I was like, really? I mean, that's so weird. I'm like, I don't feel that that's my vibe. He's like, no, well, you need to be aware of it because you are. You're an intimidating guy. And if you're going to be working with patients that are vulnerable, you have to be aware that your vibe and your presence is scary to some people. I just was shocked because I didn't wow. feel, yeah, I didn't feel that way about myself. Yeah. Wow. Weird. weird. So what happened is when I did plant medicine, I was able to do inner child work, which is a very common thing with this particular plant medicine. And I saw myself as a little kid. I was about five or six years old. And I went back to my old neighborhood, you know, in this sort of dreamlike state, which was really, really cool. And I found myself, I had to search around my neighborhood and I found myself and I, and I had to actually chase myself because I was running off like I would always do in that age. And I chased myself through the neighborhood, found me, grabbed me. And I said, dude, what's the problem? Like, what's going on? And he looked up at me, little, just little me. And he looked up and he says, I'm scared. I am just terrified. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, I'm scared. I was like, wow. And then what happened was because it was my own work, my own inner child, my own self, it resonated with me. And I felt that fear that I had at that age that I had long forgot about because I had used that fear to create this persona that was aggressive and sort of intimidating. And that's where it all clicked for me. I'm like, wow, that makes sense. Like why I'm this way, which I wasn't really in touch with. Yeah. And I was able to sort of drop that um, sort of facade that I'm a tough guy and I just left it behind. And I moved forward in my life in a more loving way. And my yeah. relationships got better. 
I was better. I was a better father. I was able to kind of like connect with people like I didn't really know that I could do it before, you know, just everything changed for me. It was incredible. Wow. That's just so beautiful because that's exactly what you did in terms of this three steps. I mean, there are people do it different ways, but in terms of remembering going back and then merging back to who you were when you first came into this earthly realm and then healing your heart, you know, that's, that's just so beautiful. You know, I loved when you um, suggest that people take a picture, I think maybe Jerry said this too, of yeah. when they were when they were very young and keep it like on their screen, on their phone or wherever they can glance at that. Um, can you just talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so um, we recommend after people go through this process that they put a picture of them, themselves as a child before the split occurred or right before it did. And it's usually four or five years old, six years old. And, and then what that is, it's a reminder that the sole contract that you have with yourself in your life is with this little you. It's, yeah. it was the, it's the authentic you. It represents who you really are. And every decision you make and every sort of life transition you go through, you run it by the authentic you, which is representative of this child. And so that's the core self. And so it's a great reminder. You know, we, we tell everybody to do it on their phones just to keep them in tune with that and remembering that and plugging back into that as often as possible. That's so beautiful. <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you've, you've done all this work and inner child. And so how does that, how does that kind of change the way you walk as, as a father? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because my first two kids, the older ones, you know, I was in grad school and I was stressed out. I was working and just trying to make ends meet and just, it was brutal. You know, it was a wonderful time, but it was also hard, you know, and, yeah. and I was, I had a little anger vibe that I had that it was just, again, for, I realized was from childhood and I was an okay dad. I wasn't a great dad. I mean, I wasn't abusive, but I just wasn't, I just wasn't present, I guess yeah. you could say. So now with these new little two ones that I got and with my current older ones, I've been able to really connect with them on a, on a, a totally different level that I actually see who they are for who their authentic selves are. And I think that's because I was able to plug that into myself first. Right. I really think it's hard to connect with people and know who people are and be authentic with people if you're not authentic with yourself. That's super, super important to do. Absolutely. What have been the greatest lessons that your, your young children have taught you? Well, I believe that children are uh, completely plugged into, I guess, whatever people believe about this, but I believe like the, the spirit world or the, the unseen world, the yes. vibrational, universal, heavenly, whatever you want to call it, the, that space they're, they're still in both of those worlds because they're un, unscathed. They're not uh, blinded by society's stuff yet. They haven't been unplugged yet. You know, they, they're still innocent and they're still pure. So what I've seen with my kids is that the more I nurture that and don't try to shut it down or, or cause a distraction in that energy, the more I nurture it, they just share so much love and just groundedness and they actually have taught me the real priorities in life which are not money not notoriety not education those are all nice things i guess but 
what's really, really important in life is love and connection and family and friends and, and the universal nature of just the way the world is and just being plugged in completely to that sort of beautiful, sort of perfect realm. And my kids have taught me that. They teach it to me every day. Yeah, that's, and I, a great lesson is to be present. You're right. You know, everybody's so busy, but just to take that time to be present. You help each other remember, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have kids, any- say the, kids say the funniest things. I mean, the kids, kids are just like, they're so on it. I mean, it's just, if you're actually listening, it's, it's beautiful. It's wise what they say. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting ready to ask you. So can you give us a couple of, or an example of something one of your little ones has said that's, can you think of anything right off the top of your head? You know, I had a lot of guilt about not being present with my older two when they were little and my little one, Scarlett, who's two, when she was about one years old, she went and grabbed uh, my son, Micah, his hand and then grabbed my hand both. And she just looked up at us and she just like started hugging both of us together. And I was like, wow, that's like, it's kind of like she was bringing us all into this. Yeah. Zone, you know? It was really, really cool. And it, it, she was just being herself. You know, she, she, she noticed something. She probably noticed tension or conflict or who the unresolved, who knows what, but right. it was a healing moment for all three of us, you know, and it was facilitated by her. She was just one years old. I mean, it was uh, crazy. Yeah. That is so beautiful. <laughs> and I, I think you're right. It happens all the time. We just, have to watch and listen and we can learn so much, so much from that. Absolutely. So um, can you just t- talk a little bit about the holotropic breathing that we also did at Rhythmia? Because that was, that was really powerful too. And then I would l- look like for you to touch upon, I know people are saying now I want to do that. And just that this is not, you know, a podcast to try to, to say you should go out and do ayahuasca, you know, maybe yeah, some, yeah. <laughs> some <laughs> information about if people are curious and how they can do some more research too. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, it, always when you go online, there tends to be a lot of weird stuff that pops up for any topic. So I would say um, probably the best way to do a little research on this is to go to the Rhythmia Facebook page because we have a lot of podcasts we've all done, like myself and Jerry and some of the other staff that really go into like the details about what's happening. I also have a, every Monday I do a Facebook live on that website, on the Facebook page. And I it's 10 minutes, usually 15. I talk about all the psychological medical sort of sides to this plant medicine experience. And uh, Arrhythmia is spelled interesting. It's R-Y-T-H-M-I-A. So if they go to our Facebook page, they can really see what's going on. Now, the problem with uh, the research about ayahuasca is that because it's a schedule one substance in most of the world, what that means is it cannot be studied in uh, most most countries. There are about 12 to 13 studies that are really good ones that have been done in other, usually in Europe and some other parts of the world that talk about exactly what's going on in the brain and how it's very beneficial not only for mental health stuff, but also physical ailments. They talk a lot about different outcomes that have been a result of, of ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Wow. And a little caution to the wind also about if you are curious, because I know some, some of the places you have to be sure that that's what's so, so beautiful about Rhythmia. It's legit. 
Yeah, well, we're medically licensed, and we're the only place in the world that has a medical license to do this. I had to clinically justify ayahuasca as a remedy for all these different issues that people come here for. So the Ministry of Health of Costa Rica has has given us a license to right. do this, and it's we're the only place in the world. So a lot of these other places, some are really good, you know, out in the world, but a lot of them are not good, and they're not safe because right. there's a lot that you know, when you're in a vulnerable position, which is where you are vulnerable when you're drinking ayahuasca because you're in your process, you're going through a lot. Uh, there's, you can get taken advantage of if you're not around the right people. So we have a full medical staff. We have medical doctors, nurses, we have EMTs, we have all these people. And you know, they're, they're actually pretty bored usually because there's, because the medicine is really <laughs> right. safe, you know, it's a safe, but we have all this medical support here. It's not usually at most of these other places, you know, so it, it's not for everybody because sometimes there's health things that prevent people from doing it. But uh, it, it's it's a, if people are medically appropriate, it's really, really helpful for them. Right. Right. And just for the listeners, too, it is it's a difficult journey. I mean, yes. this isn't just going and going and having a great time. You know, it's right. it's very hard. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, actually. The and reason one of the for that. You know, sorry, go ahead. I, was, I don't want to interrupt you. And one of, one of the most transformative things also, along with the, with the breathing, which I want you to touch upon. I will. And the reason why it is so hard is because it's like 20 years of therapy in a week. And you're yeah. doing a lot of work. You're resolving a lot of issues. And it is hard work. And there's moments of like, you know, this amazing stuff. But really, it's just processing a lot of historical emotional trauma. Right. And that's not easy to do. And part of what we've seen here is that when we add the, the breath work, that just like is an amazing process because it's very similar to the experience of ayahuasca. Yes. And people have similar outcomes. We've even had breath only weeks at Rhythmia where, where all the people that can't qualify medically for ayahuasca, they come in and do just the breath work and we do it all week. And during those weeks, we've had a hundred percent success rate based on the exit surveys, self-reported sort of, you know, what the clients tell us. So it's very powerful experience to breath work. Yeah. Yeah. I had a powerful experience when I, when I did it. And what does that mean? A hundred percent success. What is <laughs> so we have this thing called, did you get your miracle? And what that means is, did you get your intention met? Did you get your goals met? Did you accomplish the three intentions, which we've been talking about? And if you got that, then you say you check yes on the exit survey. You know, we have all these right. questions we ask people. And 100% of the people that came for breath only said yes, they did. And we have about, on average, about 95% of our guests that come for the normal weeks where we have ayahuasca and breath work, about 95% of them also say they, they got what they came for and got their yeah. miracle. So I'm not used to that kind of statistic in the West. Yeah, yeah. I'm used to about 12% success, depending on where I was and what kind of healthcare facility I was in. But around 12, 10 to 12% is about what you know medical field expects from most inpatient places. Right. So what do you think about the future of this? I know some of the Johns Hopkins and I think Penn and are doing some you know, great research on psilocybin and LSD and some, some other things. What, what do you think is going to, ayahuasca, it's such a therapeutic tool. And I don't know, what are you thinking? Well, or, you know, any, any, any remedy that takes away from the pharmaceutical industry's business and also uh, takes a big chunk of money out of the healthcare industry is going to take a little while to get 
uh, legal or to become adopted. The greatest thing ever is when these universities have started studying psilocybin and they're doing the case studies and all their clinical trials because that's an amazing remedy for depression. Um, psilocybin is great for that. And a lot of these uh, substances that are being studied right now, like ketamine and psilocybin, and now people are accepting more of cannabis and CBD now, would thank goodness, because that's a, a, also a very good remedy for a lot of conditions. What's happening is people are getting sick of just the meds and the, the way that they're just always sick and they're just, they want something to change. They want right. everything to kind of like shift. And so I believe that ayahuasca is going to come from a grassroots sort of demand, kind of like how cannabis has been. Mm -hmm. um, once the people are just demanding it, eventually uh, government and corporational sort of stuff, businesses will start to look at it and, and then bring it, bring it forth with the policies. So I think that's the, also the way that ayahuasca is going to go. It's just going to be a demand from the public and eventually it'll have to be, you know, something that's used. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to like to talk about before we, before we wrap it up? I just think that, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, in order to have, like, the way the world changes, in my opinion, is that we have to have empathy for other people. And empathy means that I can feel what someone else is feeling. And it's maybe not exactly the same because I'm not that person, but I can actually absorb the energy of that person. I can feel what they're feeling. And if I can do that, I don't want to hurt them or, or, or see them sad or see them homeless or see them upset. I want them to thrive and to be happy because if they are, then I am. And the only way that that can go down is if I've done my work on myself and I'm clear and I'm connected to me. And that's how you can have true empathy for somebody. And that's how the world changes one individual at a time. Yeah. That reminds me of the life review. That's what you're talking about. Like with yes. the near death experiencers talking about really feeling and something just kind of off the top. Well, it's not off the topic, but that's what they're talking a little bit about um, artificial intelligence too. It may give us the tools for a person to actually feel how others um, and wouldn't that, wouldn't that change the world? Yeah, it would. Definitely. It would. And children, you know, children that have autism, you know, there's a lot of these cases coming out. I truly believe that autism, even though it's a really rough thing for a kid to have and a family to deal with right now in society, I believe that the kids with autism are the next generation of evolution of humanity because they are very tuned into vibration and to senses and to like all kinds of stuff around them. And it's a little bit overwhelming for them. And that's why they are not, uh, you know, having the success in the current system that's set up. But children with autism are, um, they're beautiful, amazing people. And it's hard sometimes, of course, for families to, to see that because of the, the way that the system is set up and it's hard, right? But if you ask any mom or dad that's an autistic child, would they really think about their kid? And they're just blessed beyond belief, you know? Absolutely. And it's just, and this, but the society itself is hard and causes a lot of issues for them to be successful and have some peace within it. But I really believe that the kids with that are basically the next evolving part of humanity. You know, I absolutely agree. Maybe you can come back on and talk about that. That's such a huge topic in itself. I definitely want to, you know, do an episode on that. So cool. thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you so much. And if people want to find you, I know you've already mentioned with me a little bit, but in what other ways can they, can they find you? I have a website, Dr. Jeff McNary, 
um.com but the, the, you know, there's stuff on there I, I also do lectures and things around the country here and there it's usually the information's up there but the best way is just go to the rhythmia facebook page because that has all the videos and all the different events and it talks about ayahuasca a lot and, it, and i i'm the guy that kind of brings more of like a sort of a western bridge from the indigenous into like you know maybe most people's lives so i i just get right to it and talk about things in a clear manner as i hope and, and try to get people to feel, understand what's happening and this is a legit sort of protocol that they can use in their life all right well thank you so much for sharing and all the information will be on the show notes if someone wants to wants to find you and um yeah i really appreciate it thanks for having me it was nice talking to you have a great day thank you Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.